Amen. Thank you. I want to take as our harvest taught this morning some meditation on Psalm 8 that the young man read to us just now. It was like David having his own private harvest festival service and uh, considering the mighty and wonderful provision of God. He says, O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The context of his thinking in this psalm is this. He could understand how all the aspects of nature, the stars and the earth around, could in a sense glorify God. See, the, the creation was never intended there for us to glory in. It was for us to glory in the God who had created all those things. He could understand that. He, he didn't just look at the heavens and look at the stars and then glory in them and feel that he'd reached a kind of ceiling of revelation. No, it led him to glorify the God who created those things. He could understand that. What mystified David, what puzzled him, was how could that God be glorified by what he regarded as sinful men? How could these little scraps of clay, six foot tall, often doing wicked things, thinking wicked, how on earth could God be glorified through those people. That, as I understand it, is the kind of thinking, that's the mode, the nuance, if you like, of Psalm number 8. And he's got a very real point, because I believe it has been worked out in history and remains true from this, this very day, that apart from God, apart from God, we've no idea really who we are, and what we are actually called to do in this universe. It's God that gives significance and meaning to our lives. I often give, well, I used to give my testimony, and I always started by the little house I grew up in, a very poor part near to Temple Mead Station, and uh, I, I'd never been a, a, you know, very academic kind of person, but when I was just even a little youngster, I would sit in my bedroom on the cold lino. We didn't have carpets in those days, did we? And um, I could kind of sit behind the curtain and look out at the stars and things before I went to bed. And I was thinking about life. It seemed to me quite obvious that there must be somewhere a God, some, you know, God had created all these things. But what was the point to life? I mean, what was it all about? What did it mean? If it all ended up at the crematorium stack, and that was the end, that was the kind of supreme moment of your life, it all seemed so totally illogical. And I was so grateful when, uh, probably 10 years later, I sat and listened to Dr. Billy Graham preach the gospel, and it clicked. <laughs> and I, I, I understood then the, the revelation of God. I understood what God was endeavoring to do in people's lives. And one of the great things that happened to me at my conversion was a, a sense of meaning to my existence. And that's lived with me ever since. I mean, I'm out of my 30s now. And, um, 
No, I mean, that has remained with me throughout my life, that life becomes pregnant with meaning because of God himself, not because of those stars that were up there. I want to bring out three points. This is going to be a typical sermon. This is now three points, but they're all very biblical. You can test me out if you want. And the first is, it tells us in verse 5, with regard to man, that God created us. God created us. You made him, he says, a little lower than the heavenly beings. You made him. You created him. It was so interesting that God had produced the people, uh, the Jewish people, Israel, and he identified himself with those people, and he had a particular location where he specifically identified with them inside what was known as the Holy of Holies. It was kind of 15-foot cube, like a, almost like a large box or a small room. And there inside there was an ark, wooden ark. And on the top there was a slab of gold called the caparet, the mercy seat. And above that, was the glory of God. Only one man, a high priest, once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was this holy priest allowed to go in, taking some blood for a sacrifice and taking some incense. And there he witnessed the glory of God. And it it, it was all a well, it's wrong to say it was a visual aid, but a kind of magnificent visual aid of the presence of God. But the idea of his revelation was that Israel should be the people to reveal that God to the whole world. And it was such a a shame, really, that in their history they became separatists. And uh, Isaiah, if you read the book of Isaiah, I don't expect you want to, but if you do, you'll find it was one of the things that God really had against the people of Israel, that they had tried to contain their knowledge of him, and he wanted the whole world to know that he was gone. Eventually, God did show himself, not in a a 15-foot box on top of an ark, but he demonstrated himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the Word, which was what they called Jesus, what Jesus was, the Word became flesh, you know, became a human being and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here was the very identification of God with mankind. And it tells us that amongst his created beings from the lips of children and infants, God ordained praise. So it's a right question to ask, what is man? In the midst of all this, God revealing himself, what is man himself? I guess it's according to who you listen to. Peter Atkins, Professor Peter Atkins, I think he's Oxford University, great man. He said, man is a bit of slime on a planet. Man is a bit of slime on a planet. No belief in God. Atheistic view of life. And that's all it boils down to. What a terrible, miserable, philosophical stance to take on such a being that God has created. As uh, I think it was John Blanchard who said, that view of life means that man is born by a fluke. He lives out a farce 
and he ends up his fertilizer. That's a punchy way, typical bit of Blanchard there, to describe what man is outside of a belief in God. What does it say in verse 5 again? You have made him what a little lower than God, a little lower than God, and crowned him with glory and honor. Some of our scientists seem to regard man as a little above the animal. The scripture says that man is a little below God. And what a vast difference that view is. What does it mean that we were made in the image of God? I don't want to be too technical here, but I think it's a meaningful part of my exposition. You see, when God made man, and we have the story of it, we don't know the sort of scientific details of it, we have the story of it in uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God says, let's make man in our own image. What does that mean? That we look like God? No, of course it doesn't. Can't be, possibly mean that. It means there are attributes, there's things about you and things about me that are similar to the very character of God. Isn't that amazing? I'll put up three of them. Firstly, that we're entrusted with authority. Of course, God is the ultimate authority in the whole universe. But it says here in verse 6, You have made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. So he has entrusted authority to man who he's made in his own image. Isn't that incredible? We're called to take care of the environment. So it is important, even what lots of modern people and thinkers are saying today about us taking care of the environment. And in all of these aspects of being made in the image of God, at some point or other, we've messed up. A man has misused this authority and damaged the earth in lots of different ways. Secondly, if we're made in the image of God, it means we've got a capacity for love. I often say when I'm preaching, the Bible doesn't say that God is loving It says God is love. That that is the essential thing about God, that he is love. And he's put that capacity for love within us. So we love our children, we love our families, we love our brothers and sisters, we love those that are in Christ, and we're even called to love our enemies, which is incredibly difficult. But love, as so often in history, even to this very day, been turned into lust and into hatred. So again, we've messed up on the image of God. Thirdly, and this is a big one, really, I may pick up a bit on this tonight, I don't know, but it means that he's given us a free will. The free will of God is an immense subject, but he's put a free will within us. You say, not if we're in a sort of determinist stage, you know, where, you know, whatever God wants is going to happen. Do you remember Jesus, how he wept over Jerusalem? And he says, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. That's interesting, isn't it? He said, that's what I wanted, but you went away from it. You used your free will to refuse to accommodate the will of God within your life. Sorry if that all sounds a bit heavy for some of you that are new to church, but it's worth thinking about. So God has created us. Secondly, 
and this we can grasp, I think, a little easier, is that it says in verse 4 of our psalm, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? So he's not only created us, he cares for us. He cares for us. What is man that you care for him? Here's David, overawed by considering the immensity of the universe, then God's care for one human being. Very interesting that you can look at the universe in two ways. You can take a telescope, not that I've very often done this, but you can take a telescope and you can consider the immensity of the universe. It's mind-blowing. You've seen enough of it on TV, I'm sure, and elsewhere. Of You know, you run out of noughts, don't you, when they say about distances and so on. It, it's just a... They say that there's more stars and planets and things out there than there are grains of sand on this earth. I, I mean, I don't know how you accommodate that in your thinking. But as you look through the telescope, you're looking and considering the immensity of the universe. Immanuel Kant said humankind is dwarfed by the immensity of the universe. So you say, well, <laughs> if that's the size of the universe, I just don't count. You know, I, I'm just nothing. I'm between five and six foot of clay walking around here in a daze, and I'm not of any importance. So what you do is you put down the telescope and you pick up the microscope, and then you begin to look at the detail the incredible detail that there is in our human bodies and our human frame. And you know, that's what's turned some scientists and people over to a belief in God. I'm not sure if I've shared this with you before, I probably have, but in the latter part, or the last 50 years, I should say, really, of the last century, the leading atheist in this country was a man called Sir Anthony Flew. Uh, he was the one who taught philosophy, and he was a very strong atheist. In fact, when they had to choose one out of the whole world of philosophers to defend atheism against the Christian faith, he was the one they chose. There was a kind of international debate. He was the one who defended atheism. In 2004, he threw a kind of bomb into the philosophical world by saying there is a God. And what happened, he wrote a book, and that was the title of the book, There Is a God. In fact, I got my copy at home, I've read it three times, I can't wait to read it a fourth. And actually on the cover it's got, there is no God, and then they cross out the word no, there is a God. How on earth could a man like him who had defended atheism, suddenly changed his mind. He wrote that book as an apology to all his students and all the people that he'd influenced to become atheists over uh, several decades. And you know what changed his mind and his heart in all this? It was the study of DNA. Whilst he was thinking of the big issues, you know, the universe and so on, 
he felt there was no God. He was convinced there was no God until they discovered in more recent times, really, the wonder of DNA, what actually is the essential makeup of the human being. And he, he said in that book, um, my conclusion is this, that the only satisfactory explanation for the origin of life as we see on earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. Hallelujah. And he gave over the final two chapters of that book to a very leading Anglican, a man called Tom Wright, and he said, you put the Christian case. And if ever as a man who could do that, it was Tom Wright. He was a perfect choice as he explained the gospel of Christ. And that book went far and wide, and I thank God for it. I have a lovely piece in a book that I, I treasure at home. I'm very influenced by a man called Ravi Zacharias, my uh, in many ways, not that a man I know personally, but in many ways I regard him as a kind of mentor because he helps in this area of life. And he talks about a huge conference um, in recent times uh, in the United States of uh, scientists. And of course, a great number of those people are atheists. And one of the speakers is one of the most renowned scientists in America, more called Francis Collins. Francis Collins is right up the top when it comes to the scientific world, but he is also a born-again believer. And he did his lecture to these people. It wasn't a religious meeting or anything. It was a purely, you know, lecture-based meeting for scientists. And he showed on the screen through his PowerPoint the magnificence of the universe. And he showed all the things that we tend to see on... Then he suddenly switched over and he showed some most beautiful slides and he was showing pictures of DNA. Without him actually sort of underlining what he was doing, he showed the greatness of the universe and then he showed the greatness of the human being and the human frame. Well, this is a bit that, and I must say I'm a bit emotional at times, but I filled up with tears when I read this. He said when he finished that lecture, he looked at these people and he said, there's only one way for me to finish my lecture today. And he walked over to the side of the stage, he picked up his guitar, <laughs> and he worshipped the Lord. He sang and he worshipped God in that. And I thought, yes. Here's someone who can refute so much of what's being said against the Christian faith because he knows the Lord, he loves Jesus. And he worshipped him with his guitar. I don't know whether that means much to you, but it means an awful lot to me. And you know, Peter says in the New Testament about God and his care for us, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. I wonder if there's someone here this morning and you just wonder if God cares for you. The Bible says that he does. I remember some years ago, I preached in uh, Zambia, and they were taking a, a conference and some meetings out there, and on a particular day, they said, would, would I go and preach in a prison? I said, yes, of course. So they drove me off to a, a women's prison, and it was so poor, you could hardly believe it. It was just hard-baked soil, the floor, and a, 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 a low-level building, and there was just a line of mattresses all down the side. 
And I suppose there were, I don't know exactly, about 30 women there. And they all had the same dress on. They all wore this shift dress, as I think they call it, kind of a, a, a pinky color. And the girls or the women that had their babies, because a number of them did, even the babies had the same dress on. It looked so... Anyway, they, they were sat on the edge of their mattresses. And then at the end was their guard. She was, that was a lady as well. And I sat on a chair to preach to them. And my interpreter sat with me because uh, they all spoke the Bemba language, not English. So I had an interpreter. And I spoke to them on that verse from Peter, God cares for you. I don't know what these women had done. I guess some were in for murder, some were for theft. I don't know what they'd done. But all I could do was base my talk upon what the Bible says, that God cares for you. And at the end, I said, I'm going to offer a prayer of faith. And if you need to respond to God and to his care and his love, will you pray after me? And I did. And I said, now those of you who prayed, I'd like you to come up and just in front of me and acknowledge before your friends here that you've come. To All of them did, except him four. Even the guard came and knelt down. I panicked at that moment. You sort of say, well, you should rejoice. I panicked. I thought, I haven't explained this very well. So I said, you better just stay there for a minute and I'll go through it again. <laughs> what it meant to give their lives to Christ. And I said, now, if you really do mean what you're doing, then we'll pray again. And all of them, as far as I know, lifted their hearts to God and called upon him for help. God cares for you. When I came out of that hut and they said, before you go back to your car and away, would you come and not take a service, but just speak for a few minutes to another group of women who were not there. I said, who are these? She said, all of them are dying with AIDS. So I went, and there was a veranda, and a few ladies there, I don't know how many, I can't remember, maybe 10 or a dozen, and they looked so pitiful. And I didn't preach a sermon. I just shared a little, perhaps, of what I just said in the other group and prayed over them and commended them to the grace of God. You know, God cares for people. I don't know what your problems are this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with within your life, but he cares for you. He cares for you. If you're going to have to sit down and work out every detail and put it all right before you turn to him, it's never going to happen. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Let's come to my third and final point. Apologies in advance. I've gone a little bit over time. It says, lower down, in verse 5, you've made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God has created us. He cares for us. And it says he crowns us. He crowns us with glory and honor. I come from a kind of, I suppose I was converted into a pretty strict kind of churchmanship. And it was a bit heavy. We, we didn't go in for uncontrollable smiling and things like that, you know. <laughs> and I'm afraid sometimes you've got the impression of God, that, you know, he called you as a miserable sinner because everybody who wasn't a Christian was a miserable sinner. And, and you, you came before God and he sort of put his foot on you and saved you, but you were still a miserable sinner. And we very seldom got into the business that God lifts us up, that God crowns us with glory and honor, that God attaches to us value. And you're a valuable person. 
weren't you? I was preaching in a church, and uh, a big one. Uh, there was a couple of hundred there. And the first man out on the door was a tramp. And he thanked me for my speech, as he called it. <laughs> and I said, are you a Christian, sir? Me? He said, I'm the biggest sinner in Exeter. I looked at him. I thought, well, you look premium league. You know, he could well have been. <laughs> I said, so you couldn't become a Christian? No, nah, not me, mate. The things that I've done. I said, just tell me one thing before you go. Have you ever been responsible for the death of a Christian? Oh, no, he said, I haven't, I haven't ever done that. I said, well, I just wonder, because the Apostle Paul had, he was responsible for the death of Stephen when they stoned him, and he put others in prison. And I never forget that old tramp. As tears came down his face, he said, I've never thought of that. And I said, you know, if God can pick up a man who has destroyed Christians and make him perhaps the greatest Christian of all time, the Apostle Paul, that my friend, he can change your life and he can attach a dignity and a value to you that you've never thought of before. And that is the glory of the gospel. God wants to pick hold of you and lift you up and turn you into something very, very beautiful. I've had many experiences in life of seeing some pretty wretched people come to faith. And one of the things that I've always emphasized is that God in Christ wants to give you dignity. I'm going to finish with a little illustration because at harvest time we express our gratitude to God. When it tells us in those early chapters of Genesis that he made us in his own image, as a kind of illustration there, if I can put it like this, that when man looked into a mirror, he saw God. When God looked into a mirror, he saw man. We were made in the image of God. But in Genesis chapter 3, the hammer went in. And first man sinned and shattered the mirror. And you know the history from Genesis 1 right the way through to the end of the Bible and through to our present day is how God is restoring the image. He's restoring the image. He's endeavoring, if you like, to take the cracks out. So if you become a child of God today by opening your heart and life to Jesus, you don't become perfect all in one go. There has to be things worked out within your life as it goes for all of us. But there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will return, and the quicker the better as far as I'm sure concerned. But there's coming a day when Christ will return, and it says when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You say, what, what does perfection look like? It looks like Jesus. It's the same character that he had. It's the same view of life that he had. We should be able to look into the mirror, there'll be no cracks, and we shall see Jesus, and we should be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There is a purpose in your life. There is meaning to your life. It even gives meaning to your suffering. There's a bigger thing we can't get into now. But it, it, it gives a significance to everything that happens in our lives. In Christ, your life can be changed by the Holy Spirit, and you can be transformed into the image of Christ himself. What a wonderful psalm this is. 
on Harvest Day to underline this truth that God created us, that God cares for us, and that God crowns us. No wonder we put aside at least one day to express our gratitude to him. Amen.